Monitor Monday is recorded before a live online audience. Live from the studios of Rack Monitor, this is Monitor Monday for March 7th, 2022. Here's today's rundown. Prior authorizations in the wrong hands could be a problem. Marcy Anderson reports our lead story. Also today, will the president's proposal to overhaul the nation's nursing homes run into roadblocks in Congress? Monitor Monday legislative analyst Matthew Albright prognosticates. We'll also hear from Dr. Ronald Hirsch, healthcare attorney David Glazer, senior healthcare consultant Tiffany Ferguson, and healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel. Now here's the publisher of Rack Monitor and the host of Monitor Monday, Chuck Buck. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to Monitor Monday. We have a great deal of news to report and begin this morning with Dr. Ronald Hirsch, who was making his Monday round here on Monitor Monday. Monday Rounds is sponsored by R1 Physician Advisory Solutions. Here now making his Monday Rounds is Dr. Ronald Hirsch. Well, good morning, all. Let me start today by going back to our roots with some audit news. The Hospice Division of NGS released some interesting audit results last week. The audits were of patients who received inpatient hospice services for more than seven days. There were a few takeaways from the results. First, I know it's obvious, but it has to be said. When you get a request for records, get the records and send them. If you bill for the service, you're responsible for sending the records, even if the care was provided in a different setting. Now, we see this a lot with physicians' audits for hospital services, where they think the hospital is somehow going to notice send the records. But this also applies to inpatient hospice. The Medicare money is going to the hospice, not the hospital, so they must send the records. Second, if a patient is admitted for general inpatient hospice, um, had, had not been previously enrolled in hospice, be sure all the paperwork to get them qualified for the hospice benefit is done, including the statement of prognosis of less than six months. Yes, even if a patient is actively dying and placed in hospice for symptom management, there needs to be a statement that their prognosis is less than six months. Then, the majority of the denials were because NGS claims that the beneficiary's status did not support frequent changes in medications or care plan. Now, this one sounds fishy to me. The inpatient hospice benefit specifies that the patient must be in need of pain control or symptom management that cannot be provided in any other setting. But there's no mention of how frequently there must be a change in that care. So if you're a hospice organization, you may want to take a closer look if you get these denials and certainly consider fighting. Moving on, now I know a lot of you regularly listen to these broadcasts and probably think that David Glazer and I have some sort of bromance going on. Well, we don't. Because as you know, if you listened last week, I like earthquakes and he's all about tornadoes. But the truth is we often do think alike. And one common theme we both object to is providers who set internal rules that are not based on laws or regulations and deprive themselves of compliant revenue. Recently, I read an article that said that providers should audit their telehealth visits during COVID to ensure the patient's consent to a telehealth visit was documented, implying they would be denied in an audit. But that's not true. Consent is required only for a specific set of virtual visits and not office visits performed with telehealth under the waivers. I also heard from a facility that was still requiring the admission order to be signed prior to discharge. 
Now, that's perfectly okay to have an internal policy to improve the timeliness of signatures, but it's not a CMS condition of payment, so, th so those claims can still be submitted. Don't help preserve the liquidity of the trust fund at your facility's expense. Thanks, Chuck. Back to you. Thank you, Dr. Hirsch. That was the Vice President of R1 RCM, Ronald Hirsch, MD. Dr. Hirsch was making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. Here now with the Monitor Monday Rack Report is Healthcare Attorney Nicole Emanuel. And good morning, Nicole. Hello, and happy Rack Monitor Monday. I'm so glad to be back. Uh, as I discussed previously, on January 25th, 2022, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit issued an important opinion in Barrows v. Becerra that will have a significant impact on hospitals, skilled nursing facilities, and potentially other Medicare providers. The Second Circuit affirmed a ruling from the United States District Court for the District of Connecticut that HHS violated the due process rights of a certified nationwide class of Medicare patients that were reclassified from inpatient to observation by a hospital's Utilization Review Committee, or URC, without being provided an administrative review process to challenge that determination. As I was recently three days in the ICU for an injury, I am curious to see whether I was designated inpatient versus outpatient. Although hospitals and other Medicare providers and suppliers are not typically considered to be governmental actors, the Second, Cir Second Circuit affirmed the district court's conclusion that CMS requirements surrounding hospital URCs made those determinations state action and thus subject to due process requirements under the Fifth Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. The classification from inpatient to observation can have significant financial repercussions to the Medicare beneficiary. Hospital inpatient services are generally covered under Medicare Part A, while outpatient or observation services are generally covered under Medicare Part B. Medicare beneficiaries pay monthly premiums for Part B coverage and also are subject to co-payment obligations under Part B that may be higher than Part A. The Second Circuit's opinion has huge ramifications on providers, especially hospitals. This opinion says a hospital stands in the shoes of the government when deciding to charge this person's hospital stay under Part B. But what if the hospital itself argues that Part A should pay and it disagrees with the patient being deemed outpatient? Well, this ruling gives hospitals a lot more leeway in its finances. A hospital can sue on behalf of its own consumer or itself in getting higher or any reimbursement. The threshold question presented in this case was whether CMS's oversight and control over the hospital's URC's reclassification determinations transform those URCs into state action and thus subject to constitutional due process. The state, the Second Circuit affirmed the district court's decision, which also included a permanent injunction. The decision may favorably impact skilled nursing facilities. Generally, a Medicare beneficiary must have a three-day inpatient stay in order for Medicare to pay for subsequent skilled nursing, although this was waived during the COVID-19 public health emergency. Now, although a district court decision was issued in 2020, the Second Circuit had granted a temporary stay 
to allow the HHSS secretary to appeal. In the Second Circuit's opinion, the court affirmed the district court and denied the HHS secretary's motion to stay as deed. At this stage, HHS has not signaled what due process hospital URCs will have to provide a Medicare beneficiary who disagrees with the reclassification determination. There are also open questions about how to handle potential claims for various members. The HHS secretary has until late April 2022 to file a petition for writ certiori in the United States Supreme Court. At the time of this article, HHS has not indicated whether it intends to appeal. Thank you very much. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Nicole. That was healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel. Nicole is a partner at the law firm of practice. And coming up at about nine minutes after the hour in your time zone, you're going to hear from Matthew Albright, Tiffany Ferguson, David Glazer, and our special guest, Marcy Anderson. And stay with me for our extra report. It's my interview with special guest Marcy Anderson. It's Monday. It's March the 7th, and you're listening to the live edition of Monitor Monday. Stand by. The American College of Physician Advisors is the only physician-led, nonprofit national association of thought leaders representing all aspects of the physician advisor role. Developed to expand the influence of physician advisors through education and industry networking, the membership consists of physician advisors and other hospital leaders focused on a broad range of topics, including utilization management, case management, clinical documentation integrity, regulatory compliance, revenue cycle, and executive leadership. You're invited to partner with physician leaders and associated healthcare professionals and join their effort to foster greater physician executive influence within healthcare systems. Access uniquely formatted Medicare inpatient-only lists designed for ease of use, the results of their latest physician advisor survey, and take advantage of CME discounts available only to members. Click on the ad on the RAC Monitor homepage or go to acpadvisors.org to learn more. Here now with the Modern Money Risky Business Report is healthcare attorney David Glazer. And David, what could be risky this morning? Well, Chuck, I was going to say that it's the risk of funnels, but after Ron's segment, I wonder if it was the risk that I didn't get him anything for Valentine's Day. So many listeners know that my hobby is storm chasing. And when you're storm chasing, a funnel is great unless it happens in a populated area like those horrible storms in Iowa this weekend. Similarly, when you're cooking or putting sugar in a hummingbird feeder, a funnel can come in handy. But there are times when the size of your funnel matters. I want to focus on how you gather information for your compliance process. There are two competing approaches. One approach is to have a wide funnel that casts a broad net. I generally favor this I think offering employees as many ways to report a problem as possible is, is a good, good way to, to work. It's good to have a compliance hotline, but I also encourage clients to tell their employees that they can use an anonymous Gmail account as a mechanism to report to compliance. That approach offers the benefit of an anonymous back and forth. It gives you the opportunity to ask the person questions. While a hotline may be able to do a short interview of a caller, the person answering the hotline is rarely well-versed in the intimate details of an organization. The hotline interview is unlikely to be a substantive source of discussion that's going to mirror what you could get in an email back and forth. Similarly, I tell organizations to encourage employees to talk to the person 
they feel most comfortable working with when they report an issue. That makes it more likely that the person actually will take the time to do it. They may feel like talking to their supervisor, it might be a board member, or maybe someone on the compliance team. A wide net, or in this metaphor, a broad funnel, should capture more data. But it comes with a significant downside. The more entry points you have into your compliance process, the higher the risk that one of them winds up leading to a dead end. For example, while I love that anonymous Gmail idea, what if the email winds up going to spam? It's great for an employee to talk to their supervisor about concerns, but what if it turns out that the supervisor actually is the problem? Or maybe they just drop the ball and don't report it. It's something that happens with even the best employee. The bottom line is that having more points of entry also means having more ways in which the system can fail. So is it better to go broad or narrow? Honestly, I'm not entirely sure, but I think the best strategy is to use the broad net, but then encourage employees to expect follow-up when they report a compliance issue. Tell the employee that if they haven't heard back from someone, they should report again, ideally to a different person, and as part of that second report, explain that their first inquiry was unanswered. Let the person who's raising the concern serve as a safety check on the compliance process. Now, I've had organizations pay millions of dollars in situations where an employee raised a concern, but the person to whom they reported failed to relay that concern to the people in compliance. In some cases, the person failing to report was malicious, in others, they were negligent. But in the end, it doesn't matter whether it was an intentional or an oversight if the concern is never investigated. The bottom line is if you teach your employees that they should expect follow-up directly from compliance, it makes the option of using that broad net much safer. If you tell employees to expect follow-up, it gives you the opportunity to sing Men Without Hats. You can dance if you want to, and then you can sing the safety dance. Chuck, back to you. <laughs> Thanks, David, very much. I was healthcare attorney David Glazer. David is a shareholder in the law firm of Fetrish and Byron in downtown Minneapolis. Here now with the latest news on the social determinants of health is senior healthcare consultant Tiffany Ferguson. Tiffany also has the Monitor Monday listener survey. Good morning, Tiffany. Good morning, Chuck. President Biden covered several topics in a State of the Union address last week. However, for today's segment, I'm going to dive into the discussion related to our mental health crisis. I will include the direct link with further details in my article on Rack Monitor. The mental health crisis described in reports such as Kaiser Family Foundation expresses growing concerns for mental health issues that are impacting all demographics and creating a significant presence in American lives. During COVID, two out of five adults reported symptoms of depression and anxiety, a significant increase from our pre-pandemic numbers, which was one in 10. These numbers reflect how many Americans struggle with financial stressors, sleepless nights, substance use and alcohol dependency and social isolation. And although suicide data reflects a decline, deaths related to overdose, drug overdose is up by 28%. Mental health issues are also continuing to rise among youth as the age of diagnosis is now around 10 to 12, especially with ADHD, anxiety, and depression. 
The Biden administration has an extensive wish list to address mental health in our country. Today, I'm going to provide a quick rundown of about the initiatives. There were about 20 listed. We are going to briefly go through those. Three items plan to increase funding with an, and the number of mental health and substance use disorder clinicians across the country with additional incentives for rural and underserved communities. Opportunities range from loan repayment to certification programs for peer support specialists. There are also hopes to retain frontline health care workers through additional support to address burnout and workplace stressors. Nationally, HHS will be launching 988 a mental health crisis service line with immediate telephone support to those in need. The administration is also hoping to refurbish their mentalhealth.gov website to become a user-friendly website with resources for information and provider services. The strategy made requests to expand the certified community behavioral health clinic designations and ensure more clinics are available to provide 24-7 mental health care. They're going to double the funding for, or hope to, uh, for primary and behavioral health integration clinics, incorporating this model for veteran services as well. There are also targets for health plans who will be expected to cover behavioral health visits, including a minimum annual of three visits without consumer cost sharing per year. Additional ideas listed in the uh, included the interest to expand access to tele and virtual mental health services, school-based mental health, and looking to provide $50 million to, pro to pilot programs to co-locate mental health services in non-traditional settings such as community centers and homeless shelters. Lastly, the remaining initiatives focused a lot on mental health support for children and youth, including stronger online protections, Include and stopping discriminatory algorithmic decision-making searches. There was significant concern about the amount of time our youth are connected to devices and how this may be impacting their mental well-being. Thus, the plan provides investment in research related to social media and expands early childhood and school-based interventions. In addition, plans are listed to increase public and community outreach to raise awareness for mental health, particularly in children. For our question today, I ask our listeners, similar to the Biden administration's plan with significant items targeted to help young adults and youth, are you concerned about the impact social media has on our children and youth mental well-being? Yes, no, unsure. And with that, back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Tiffany. That was Senior Healthcare Consultant Tiffany Ferguson. Tiffany is the Chief Executive Officer for Phoenix Medical Management. And as Tiffany said, we're going to have the results of the Monitor Money Listener Survey later in this broadcast. Up next, Matthew Albright with the Monitor Money Legislative Update. The Legislative Update with Matthew Albright is sponsored by Zealous, a market-leading provider-focused electronic healthcare payments technology company. Zealous delivers faster, simpler, more reliable, cost-effective payments backed by award-winning client service to medical and dental providers nationwide. Here now is Matthew Albright. Chuck, as Tiffany just mentioned, healthcare issues figured prominently in President Biden's State of the Union address last week. First, on the pandemic, Biden struck a cautiously optimistic tone, reflected by the fact that the requirement for lawmakers to wear masks in the chamber was dropped just the week before. The president used the pandemic as an underlying springboard for other issues throughout his speech, which included Russia's invasion of Ukraine, 
uh, climate change, and the economy. Two days after his speech, the administration released a 96-page COVID preparedness plan that implements Biden's cautious optimism. The plan, for example, envisions acceleration of the development of a single COVID vaccine to protect against any and all new COVID variants. The plan also emphasizes the need to prevent future economic and school shutdowns and a plan to vaccinate the world. As Tiffany talked about, the president used the State of the Union to launch a mental health initiative, focusing on school-age children in particular. The president also talked about lowering drug and healthcare costs, including a plan to cap out-of-pocket insulin at $35 a month. That initiative does have bipartisan support, so it should be a slam dunk, but analysts are saying that partisan politics may get in the way. As they say, nothing is easy in D.C. In a related move, soon after Biden's speech, the Federal Trade Commission announced that it would launch a probe into pharmacy benefit managers, pharmacy benefit managers, or PBMs, which manage prescription drug coverage. The study would look at how PBM incentives may be exasperating drug pricing. The president also talked about his cancer moonshot initiative, which he started when he was vice president under Obama and which he reignited at the start of his own administration. The cancer moonshot aims to cut death rates from cancer in half before 2050. Finally, the president set out steps in his set out steps his administration wants to take to overhaul the quality of nursing homes through 20 specific actions, including setting staffing levels and beefing up inspections. You can find more information on the administration's nursing home initiatives on the Rack Monitor news site in an article by Mark Spivy. Like many of the initiatives announced by Biden in Tuesday's speech, the nursing home initiative will require funding and in some cases statutory authority from Congress. Returning to COVID, Biden said there would soon be test and treat programs across the country where consumers could, who test positive to a COVID test given at a pharmacy would immediately be given antiviral therapy to fight the virus. The president said these one-stop shops would be available in 100 locations just this month. Chuck, in 2020, healthcare accounted for nearly 20% of this country's gross domestic product. Federal government spending on healthcare grew 36%, while American household spending on healthcare increased by 26%. Biden's emphasis on healthcare and his national address is a reflection of the fact that so much of this country's time and resources are directed toward healthcare. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Matthew. That was former CMS official Matthew Albright. Matthew was the chief legislative affairs officer for Zealous. Now is the time for the results of today's Monitor Money listener survey. Once again, here is Tiffany Ferguson. Thanks, Chuck. So during our listener survey, I asked our listeners, are you concerned about the impact social media has on our children and youth mental well-being? And I am relieved to say that 96% of us said yes. So hang in there, my uh, parents. We're all there in it together trying to figure this social media thing out with our kids. And with that, back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Tiffany, for your survey. Coming up next, what happens when prior authorizations end up in the wrong hands? Well, that story is next. And then join me for my live interview with Marcy Anderson, an extra three minutes of value just for you. This is Monitor Monday. Stand by. Do payers have the upper hand with your hospital? The language in commercial payer contracts drives crucial aspects of your revenue cycle 
including the determination of admission status and how much you get paid for a patient's care. Despite the best efforts of your contract managers, you may not be able to obtain the agreed-upon rate. Often, the culprit is how the contract is worded. You might be getting the short end of the stick. During an upcoming Rack Monitor webcast, you will learn how to turn the tables in your favor. Listen and learn from Tiffany Ferguson and Marie Steinbuck to ensure that your Revenue Cycle team understands payer requirements. Join them Thursday, March 24th at 1.30 p.m. Eastern for this special webcast, Payer Contracts, Keys to Increasing Your Leverage. As we mentioned at the top of the broadcast, prior authorizations in the wrong hands can cause a world of hurt, like being in the hands of a recovery auditor. Here now to report our lead story is Marcy Anderson. Good morning, Marcy, and welcome to Monitor Monday. Hi there. Good morning, everyone. Uh, this is Marcy Anderson. I certainly appreciate the opportunity this morning to be here with you. Uh, at SAI 360, I have the opportunity to work and collaborate with many hospitals, health systems, and providers across the country. Today, I wanted to share and help bring some awareness to a recent issue related to recovery auditors. Uh, as many of you are probably painfully aware, uh, in the 2020 OPPS ASC final rule, CMS established a nationwide prior authorization process for certain outpatient uh, department services. CMS stated that they believed that this prior authorization process for these services would help ensure that the beneficiaries would continue to receive great medical necessary care um, and also protect that Medicare trust fund. So the prior authorization process for these identified services, there were five uh, initially, and then uh, this past year they added two more, but those first five, uh, for dates of service July 1st and after would be subject to this uh, prior auth process. An FAQ was issued to, to help providers that might have questions regarding um, the pre-auth process and, and supply some answers. One of the questions in the FAQ is, will these claims be subject to post-payment review? Now, the answer has been adjusted, if you look it up now, uh, from its original um, one that was posted. Originally, it listed UPIC uh, when suspected gaming or fraud was there, and also CERT, uh, who establishes the Medicare error rate, could review these services. Uh, since the initial posting, it has been updated, and they have added the MAC under their Probe and Educate program would also at times be allowed to review these prior auth uh, accounts. Now, the recovery auditor has never been listed um, on this in the initial answer or the subsequent one, and quite frankly, it never should be. What is the point of going through the administratively burdensome process of pre-auth and validating that you have met program requirements if these are going to be subject to review after the fact? So uh, I work with a, uh, some providers, and you can probably guess where this story is going. Uh, imagine their surprise when this past fall they received a request from their recovery auditor requesting records. In that request for, were for cases for vein ablation services, uh, and those are on that pre-auth list, and they were for dates of service after July 1st. 
each of these accounts had been through the pre-auth process. Uh, I first just want to pause and say kudos to this organization for doing an evaluation up front rather than just kicking a letter over to their HIM team to release the records or their uh, release of information vendor. Uh, they reached out to the recovery auditor in October thinking, hey, this must be a mistake. Um, they fully expected the recovery auditor to acknowledge they made an error and send a recent notice on these accounts. The recovery auditor instead referred them to CMS. So they reached out to CMS in November. CMS did finally respond last month and stated they recognized the issue and they let their recovery auditor know and their recovery auditor would be reaching out by the end of last week with their final response on this issue. Still no news from this recovery auditor, but now that we're getting the message out, um, growing in awareness, uh, hopefully we'll, we will hear from them soon. Um, I really hope shining the light, bringing some awareness um, to this and making sure that organizations are aware and carefully reviewing that request when it comes in um, can help us push back and require that recovery auditor to follow the, the guidelines. Thanks, Chuck. Back to you. Thanks, Marcy. That was the Director of Account Management at SAI360, Marcy Anderson. And that's going to be a wrap for this live edition of Monitor Money, but stay with me for an extra three minutes in my interview with Marcy Anderson. And we thank you very much for being with us today. And a special thanks to our outstanding panelists, Matthew Albright, Nicole Emanuel, Tiffany Ferguson, David Glazer, Dr. Ronald Hirsch, and Marcy Anderson, who reported our lead story. And one more thing before we go, be sure to listen to all the Monitor Money broadcasts on Stitcher, Apple, Spotify, Google Play, and when you do, rate us. Give us a review. And coming up next, an extra three minutes of value. That's when I interview Marcy Anderson. Until next Monday, I'm Chuck Buck, reporting for Monitor Monday and Rack Monitor. Have a great week, everybody. Monitor Monday is a presentation of Rack Monitor. Hello, everybody, and welcome to an extra three minutes of value brought to you today by SAI 360. And joining me this morning for our three minutes of value is Marcy Anderson. Marcy Anderson is the Director of Account Management at SAI 360. And Marcy, tell us, please, how SAI 360 can help providers. Yes, Chuck. Thanks again for having me on the program today. I appreciate it. Um, as I stated, I have the opportunity to work with hundreds of healthcare organizations and providers. Um, we help uh, automate their revenue integrity, um, as well as their governance risk and compliance programs. I think it's becoming more and more important to find ways to streamline and automate the business process. Uh, additionally, creating transparency to the data that you collect um, along the way as you go through uh, that process and respond and interact with um, contractors, auditors, and even those in your organization. Uh, to move from just having data to having action, actionable data it is critical. Um, specifically in the space of payer audit, uh, it often seems like the payers or auditors knows our know our data better than we do. Um, and we've got to be able to level the playing field here. Information can be so powerful. Uh, when you can sit down at a table with um, an insurer as you're going through that contacting, contracting process, 
and share and discuss information to say, hey, I'd like to talk to you about the uh, reviews that you have been doing on our claims, both by your internal teams as well as by contractors. Uh, it might make them a bit uncomfortable because guess what? The, the tables have shifted now if you have that information. When you share the numbers of, of records reviewed, the initial compliance rate, breaking down for both internally and those external uh, audit vendors, um, share the overturn rates on appeals, you can shed light on this burdensome process that they're requiring you to go through. It can also lead to conversations of a better way to reduce the burden for both parties. Um, everyone's goal should be to ensure that providers spend more money on patient care and less on administratively burdensome tasks. So uh, thanks for having me on today. As we come to a close, I just wanted to share, we do um, a lot of uh, complimentary webinars. We work uh, closely with Day Agasquita uh, from AR Solutions, who many of you will know. Uh, you're welcome to listen to any of those uh, past recorded training sessions that, that she does, as well as register for uh, upcoming uh, webinars with her. Our next series is going to be Recent Trends and Audits and Denials. And that can be done from our website at SAI360.com. Uh, also, you're welcome to reach out to me directly. I think my uh, email is probably available. Uh, if not, I can, I can share it out. Um, I'll be at HCCA Compliance Institute at the end of the month. I would love to connect um, in person or just have a conversation, but just appreciate the time today. Thanks, Chuck. Thanks, Marcy. That was the Director of Account Management at SAI360, Marcy Anderson.